Revelation 2, we're going to look at Pergamum's compromise tonight. Pergamum's compromise. So compromise is an interesting word to think about because it can have some different connotations. In one sense, compromise is a positive thing. If you can find a middle ground, for example, with your spouse, uh, marriage is about compromise. I'm sure you've probably noticed. So, you know, the, if you look up in a dictionary, compromise, it has the idea of meeting someone halfway. It has the idea of, you know, kind of looking out for the best uh, in others. A happy medium, if you will. Bringing resolve to an issue by talking about it and, and compromising on both sides. But compromise also has a negative connotation, and this is what it would mean. It's making concessions to things that you ought not compromise with. For example, sin. You never compromise with sin. Because if you give sin an inch, it will become the ruler in your life, right? You don't meet the devil halfway, ever. You don't try to nibble on his dangling carrots, because if you nibble on his dangling carrots... They won't give you better eyesight. They will blind you. Because there's poison inside, right? So compromise in that sense has a negative uh, connotation. And that's what we're going to talk about in terms of the church at Pergamum tonight. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, for each precious soul that's come or will listen to this later, we're just so grateful to be together again. We're grateful to be in your word. Your word is a sharp sword. The Bible tells us that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from your sight. Everything is naked and open before the one to whom we must give an account. And what's amazing about those verses is it leads right in to the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ who is on our side. And even though you know everything and you see everything and you do discipline the ones that you love, yet at the same time you're our high priest on our side, ever living to intercede for your people. And sometimes what we need is your sword to go deep into our hearts, Lord, to do some spiritual surgery so we might be better, so we might heal in areas where we're just not right. So we just pray that you would bless our time and lead us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen. So there's going to be a progression to the middle three letters that we're going to look at in the book of Revelation. Here's how it works, and this is from uh, James Hamilton's commentary on Revelation. He says, the first of the three middle letters to Pergamum addresses a church that holds to false teaching, but they are not explicitly rebuked for false teaching and sexual immorality, although I would add that they're called to repent. The second of the three is Thyatira. It's rebuke for tolerating Jezebel. We'll talk about her in a, in a message ahead of us. Who teaches the Lord's servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat food offered to idols. The third of the middle letters is to Sardis, addressing a church that is dead. This is what Hamilton says, and it's insightful. He says, do you know how a church dies? I would suggest a hint here. It starts with false teaching, which leads to idolatry and immorality, and which kills the church. So teaching doctrine is extremely important because what you understand doctrinally is bound to come out in your behavior. 
So when we're talking about teaching the Bible, we're talking about wanting to get the truth into us so that the truth would set us free. But in some cases, in order to be free, we need some spiritual surgery, right? Sometimes we need the word of God to cut us deep in the heart so that God can do his surgery and redirect us where we need to be. And that's not always comfortable. So here's the problem. If you go to a feel-good church and look, I know none of us want to pick a feel-bad church. You know, we don't, we don't want to go, hey, let's find a church in the city where we can feel really bad. Maybe their sign will even say that. Come here and you'll feel horrible about yourself, right? Yeah, sounds wonderful. But look, if you're only told what you want to hear, then you may never hear what you need to hear. And I'm sure you've noticed that when you go through the Bible, most of it is not comfortable. <laughs> In fact, I'm amazed that, you know, as many of you show up as you do on these nights, because we kind of know what's coming when these letters are written to the churches. I've told you that there's only a couple of churches that get off the hook, that there's no rebuke. And then there's five of the seven churches get some, some form of rebuke. Of course, they get commended as well. What was the problem of the church in Pergamum? They were flirting with evil. They lived in a culture that was just a cesspool of evil. And in the ancient world in, where Pergamum was situated, they were situated right in the middle of a culture that looked something like this. These are ruins in, uh, uh, of ancient Pergamum now sitting in modern-day Turkey. And this is a picture of a theater on a high Acropolis. And Pergamon was known by Pliny the, the, the Younger, who was a Roman writer, as the jewel of Asia Minor. It was an incredible city, and it was incredible for the sake that it had all of these magnificent buildings and structures, some of which uh, you can even look at today. This is an aerial view of what was on the, this Acropolis. And whenever you hear the word Acropolis, it means an elevated city. And so this, this city was sitting high up on the hill. Often these cities were situated this way because they were a, a good defense against invading armies. This is a model of what the Acropolis would have looked like, and it would have many areas that were dedicated to false gods and goddesses. And so um, this is one of the pictures where uh, in a lot of these cities, if not all of them, you'll find some sort of sacred way that leads up to a, a worship area. And many of these are preserved and so these were uh, walkways that led up to areas where there were pagan practices going on. Up on top of this Acropolis in ancient Pergamum was a, a second century um, structure that was dedicated to Trajan, the emperor. And apparently it was constructed in his time. And this is a reconstructed look at it. So they, they've done some reconstruction on this, but they had a lot of uh, different things that were up there. This is a, uh, an area that leads to call a, a temple that was dedicated to the god Asclepius or Asclepium. And he was the goddess or the god actually of healing. And people would come to Pergamum from all over the world and they would go into the temple of Asclepius and they would look for healing. A famous doctor was born here in the second century AD and people would come to him to get medical advice. But they, they would say that this was a combination of spiritual and medical. So you would have some practitioners of uh, you know, doctor types. Remember, Luke was a doctor way back in the first century. But they would also combine it with a spiritual type of uh, what they said was a healing. Asclepius was uh, denoted by the uh, 
object of a serpent or a snake. In fact, the medical insignia today of a serpent wrapped around a pole comes from the ancient idea of this God of healing. And people would enter down these sacred ways. They would come from all over the world. They would enter into the temple of Asclepius. And what would happen is that they would have snakes roaming through the temple. Non-poisonous, by the way. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that the, this God, this ancient healing God, is represented by a serpent. So if you're a Christian in Pergamum, what are you going to think of when you see the, this temple to Asclepion or Asclepios? You're going to think of the devil. And people who are in need of healing, and look, we all go through a fallen world and we get various troubles with our body and that kind of thing. And the ancients were no different than us. The devil said of Job, skin for skin, all a man, all a man has will he give in exchange for his life. And so we have this drive for survival. And so people can get desperate and they want to do all kinds of things. And, you know, we, we hear of people selling their soul to the devil for fame and fortune. Well, how, how about for healing? And so people would go into these places with the hope of coming out healed. And this was, uh, you know, captured by the symbol of a serpent or a snake. In the ancient world, there were some stone cutters in this area. And there's a, there's a, a record from some historians that Christian stone cutters in the area refused to uh, cut the stone to make the shape of that God, and they were executed for it. Not easy to be a Christian in this area of the world. There are all kinds of pagan temples, all kinds of pagan gods. This is one to an Egyptian god of the underworld. These are some white stones of what people think that they may represent. And this is um, one of the main things that this area is known for, and it's depicting a battle between the gods of the Greek pantheon. And there was an altar nearby here called the altar to Zeus, who was the chief of the gods. And this altar to Zeus overlooked or looked down from the Acropolis, and Zeus was the chief of the gods. And so people who were in this area would be exposed to this kind of thing, and it's, uh, I think, almost 500 feet across and, you know, quite extravagant detail, and much of it is preserved today. Interestingly enough, many of these artifacts was moved to Berlin, Germany in 1930. And uh, the, this area was come to, came to be known as the place where Satan dwells or where Satan's throne is. And many of the artifacts ended up in Berlin, Germany in 1930, just before the rise of guess who? Adolf Hitler. Hmm, interesting, isn't it? And so let's take a look at how the letter opens. This is um, the letter to the church at Pergamum. It says, Revelation 2.12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword uh, or the long sword of judgment says this. So I want to take you back. Um, I'm going to get us back to the original slide that my beautiful wife put together. And uh, this is the one who addresses the church. He's the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. When I opened in prayer, I mentioned to you that the Word of God is sharper than what? Any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Jesus Christ wields a sword. In the ancient world of Pergamum, it was said that one of the things that they did in this area is that they erected... Um, uh, 
temples to the Roman emperors. And one of the things that the Christians were especially dealing with is what scholars call the imperial cult. So even though you had a great altar to Zeus and Asclepion and those kinds of false gods, the biggest problem in Pergamum was that the emperors were being worshipped. And there was a great temple uh, to one of the emperors named Augustus, who it was completed around 29 BC. And then they erected a second one in the second century to Trajan. And here's what would happen. They would have the festivals to the emperors, and they would say, you must make the sacrifice to the emperor and acknowledge the emperor as some sort of God. This was a huge problem for the Christians, of course, in the first and uh, ongoing centuries. And so they would have to deal with this, and they would have to deal with the power of the sword. And Rome had given the power of the sword to the governor of this area. So the governor of Pergamum, if you weren't on board with what was happening in this part of the world, and think of all the things that are going on. There's an altar to Zeus, one of the seven wonders of the world. There's a temple to Asclepion. There's a temple to uh, the wine god Bacchus or Dionysius. There's all this pagan stuff going on. There's emperor worship going on, and you live here as a Christian. <laughs> Very difficult. And they had the power of the sword. That is to say, the governor of Pergamum was given the power of life and death. And if you didn't obey, you could pay with your life just like many of our brethren are facing in the Middle East even today. If they don't go with the program of what's being taught in some of those areas, it's, it can be very brutal. So the angel of the church is addressed, probably the lead pastor here or the leading elder or bishop in Pergamum. And the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. I think Jesus is reminding them the one who has the ultimate sword is Jesus, Right? Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill your body, and after that he has no power over you. Fear him who can destroy or ruin your soul and cast it into the deepest part of Hades, Matthew 10, 28. So that's who we should fear, but we often fear the wrong thing because we have self-preservation in us, of course. And so this is what the Christians were facing. This area of Pergamum, uh, I've heard some scholars say the word means married, I've heard other scholars say it means citadel, which would fit well with its location. It was 60 miles north of Smyrna along that postal route that we've been looking at. It contained a huge library, said to have more than 200,000 parchment scrolls. People came to this area of Pergamum seeking knowledge. Indeed, our word parchment is derived from the, this name, Pergamum. And so... Um, legend says that parchment or vellum was invented by the Pergamenes the paper called Pergamenia, to provide writing material for the great library. So you have an Acropolis rising 1,300 feet above the lower city, and people are coming out from all over the world to gain knowledge, to get healing, to worship Zeus, to worship the emperors. And guess who they would run into the, in these cities? They'd run into Christians. And what were Christians saying? There's one God, and his name is Jesus. Don't worship these false gods. And they would start to witness in the city. And guess what? Not everybody liked what they had to say. So they were getting negative attention. And the power of the sword was hanging over them, what's called eus gladi in the Latin. And so the Christians were facing all of this difficulty, all of this paganism, not unlike our culture today. If you're a Christian, you are definitely going to be swimming against the tide. I'm sure you have noticed All it takes for you to go with the culture is just basically float because any dead fish can float downstream, and that's pretty much where the culture is going. 
The culture's redefining everything that's sacred. I'm sure you've noticed marriage and sexuality and even male and female, everything's being attacked. Things that we took for granted is being attacked. People would come into this area and they would also have a chance to worship a false god who was known as Dionysius. He was the son of Zeus. He was supposed to be born in some supernatural way through a god and a, and a human mom. Sound familiar? The devil's a counterfeiter and that's what he does. So people would come to the temple of Dionysius and they would get drunk. And in getting drunk, this is how they were supposed to become one with the god or the goddess. So in order to go to Dionysius' temple, you just knock back about however many glasses of wine it took. You got drunk. They said people would gorge on raw meat and then they would go into this temple to be one with the god. Have you ever met somebody who says, dude, when I get high, I can be closer to God? I'm sorry. That's an old lie. In fact, that idea is captured in a Greek word called pharmakia, where we get the idea of a pharmacy or drug use. That's not how you get in touch with God. The Bible says don't be drunk with wine. That's a waste. Be filled with what? The Spirit. And so people would come here, and, and they would kind of lose their minds in this city and the Christians were facing all of this kind of stuff. In Revelation 19, flip over there for a second, Jesus is depicted as holding the sword. We saw that in Revelation 1 as well, as a sharp sword comes out of his mouth. But in Revelation 19, look at verse 15. Revelation 19, 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them, Revelation 19, 15, with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. He is what? King of kings. And he is Lord of lords. In chapter 1, verse 18, he holds the keys, if you go back to chapter 2, of death and Hades. So Jesus, I think, is reminding this church not to fear the one who can only deal with your body, but to fear the ultimate judge and to give allegiance to him. Jesus says to this church, chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness or my martus, we'll talk about him in a second, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, if you read commentaries on the book of Revelation, there's all kinds of conjecture about the throne of Satan. What does this mean? Does, did Satan literally set up shop here? Is this where he dwells? Does he dwell in Pergamum or modern uh, Turkey? What does this mean? And so people have said, well, maybe this is captured in the one of the seven wonders of the world, the Greek god Zeus who was overseeing the city. Maybe Satan's throne being in Pergamum is captured by the Greek god Asclepion, the god of healing represented by the serpent. And others would say, no, maybe... Satan's throne is in Pergamum because that's where all the emperor worship is going on and all this idolatry. But maybe it's a combination of everything that was happening in Pergamum, amen? Maybe it's the fact that Satan had indeed set up shop in that neighborhood. And, you know, sometimes we, we hear people say, you know, I don't live in a very good neighborhood. Well, try living in Pergamum. Try living in a place where Jesus says, you live where Satan dwells. Some of you may think that that's your neighborhood. I don't know. 
Maybe you think Lucifer is your next door neighbor. I don't know. <laughs> but this church was facing a place that we would call spiritually, extremely spiritually dark. Satan was in the hood. This was not a good place to live. This was a bad part of town. This was a place where there was a, a terrible satanic stronghold. You've heard missionaries talk about going to areas that seemed extremely dark. And what they meant by that is that not it was overcast, but that some regions seemed to have more spiritual darkness than others. You can enter into some places, even maybe some dwellings where it seems spiritually dark. And you're like, what is going on here? What am I sensing? And if you've ever been in that situation, sometimes the, the discernment of the spirit tells you there's something wrong. Something dark is going on here. And those of you who have the gifts of discernment have maybe experienced that more than others. I know where you live. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's the kids upstairs, don't worry. I think, I think they're having a good time. Either that or they're wrestling and somebody's losing. I don't know. And so I know where you live. I know what you're going through. Each time the commissioner of these seven letters addresses the church, he reminds them, I know what you're going through. I know where you live. I know the spiritual darkness that you are facing. I know the struggles that you have. I know where you reside geographically, and I know what's going on there spiritually as well, and that's good news. And he commends them. Often in these letters, we see a commendation, something good. You hold fast my name. Jesus is serious about his name. He says, you don't deny my faith, or you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, Antipas may have been the pastor at Pergamum. And the pastor at Pergamum was killed, probably for preaching the gospel in the city, probably for telling people that idols that are represented in this city are false, they're lies of the devil, and Antipas paid the ultimate price. And the church then had to try to continue and go on and deal with you know, the fallout of losing probably, at least if he wasn't the pastor, he was some sort of major spiritual leader at Pergamum, and he was killed. And you could imagine the aftermath of that church trying to navigate their way after someone in leadership was killed. We don't know a lot about Antipas, but some believe his name means against all. He was probably one of the leaders at the church of Pergamum. He is uh, named in a third century inscription discovered at Pergamum. He's also mentioned by the church father, Tertullian. And he's called my witness, my faithful one, Titles given to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 5 are applied to Antipas. This is how the Lord described him. He's my witness. He's my faithful one. Do you ever wonder how the Lord would describe you? Do you ever wonder what he might tell the angels in heaven about you? Well, sometimes we can automatically think of negative things, right? Most of us, our minds go there. Oh, I know what he's saying about me. <laughs> and it's not good. But I'm going to tell you when we get to the end of this passage that there's something here about a new name and the Lord doesn't see you how sometimes you see yourself. We see the negative in us, but the Lord sees who you are in Christ and who you will be. Amen? As you come to full maturity in him. Turn to Psalm 63 for a second. Psalm 63. As David writes his psalm, he, he writes a lot of his psalms in times of struggle and even 
crying out for the Lord to meet him in spiritually dry places. I'm sure that the church at Pergamum would need encouragement like this, and maybe you do tonight. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, thou art my God. I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63, 2. Thus I have beheld thee in the sanctuary to see thy power and thy glory. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise thee. So I will bless thee as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember thee on my bed, I meditate on thee in the night watches, for thou hast been my help, and in the shadow of thy wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to thee, thy right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. We tend in our lives, Revelation 2, if you go back there, to focus on what's temporal. And we ask questions like this. I'm sure you do. Would I be willing to die for my faith? Would I be willing to make the ultimate stand for Christ? I live in America. My persecution is not too bad, if at all. Maybe you get a little persecution at work. Maybe a little bit at home. Maybe a little bit from a family member. But these churches were facing some serious stuff. And it's very contemporary, at least to those who are living in tough areas where Satan's throne seems to be set up. Verse 14 of Revelation 2. After he commends them, I told you in most of these letters, there's something that he criticizes them for, and here's what he says. He says, I have a few things against you, verse 14, chapter 2, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block, that is some sort of trap or snare or impediment, before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now, this man, this, this idea of Balaam, comes up three times in the New Testament. Write it down. 2 Peter 2.15, Jude 1, verse 11, and Revelation 2.14, and this man, Balaam, comes up. What do we know about Balaam? Well, his story is recorded in Numbers chapters 22, 23, and 24. And I'll give you some little snippets of it, but I want to show you something in 2 Peter. So just a few pages back, 2 Peter, he brings this up in the context of false teachers. Here's what he says. 2 Peter 2, look at verse 12. 2 Peter 2, 12. But these, the context is false teachers, are like unreasoning animals. 2 Peter 2, 12. Born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the... In, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. 2 Peter 2.13. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery, they never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children... Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. 
But he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a dumb donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, how many of you remember the story of Balaam and his donkey? We got to go there just for a second. Numbers 22. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Numbers 22. Take a look. I told you that his story is recorded in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. But here's what's going on, basically. This guy's a prophet. The, uh, the king, Balak, wants him to curse the children of Israel, but he says, I can't curse them. God's not allowed me to. And look at Numbers 22. Look at, pick it up at verse 28. So he's, he's heading on the road, and uh, he's kind of beating up his donkey a little bit. Look at 22, 28. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Numbers 22, 28. And she said to Balaam, have you ever wondered, you know, this seems pretty fanciful, but uh, we see all kinds of movies today. There's talking dogs. Everybody loves a talking dog, right? Talking dogs are just, just so cool, right? Just tell you what's, what's going on and all that. Well, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you've made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all, the, all your life to this day? Am I not your donkey? Have I been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord. Most scholars believe this is Jesus standing in the way with his what? drawn sword in his hand. I want you to think of the imagery of Revelation 2. Pergamum, the one who has the sword, says this to you. The angel of the Lord is probably Jesus in the Old Testament. Here's a prophet wanting to curse the children of Israel, at least lead them into idolatry and sexual immorality. And there's Jesus standing with a sword. Oh, there's definitely a connection. And the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, spiritually speaking. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I surely would have killed you just now and let her live. Well, how do you like them apples? You got mad at your donkey? Your donkey had better eyes and better spiritual discernment that you, than you did. I'm sure that donkey hopefully would have gotten really good treatment for the rest of her life, right? Special donkey food, gifts at Christmas time, <laughs> necklace, Wilbur, I don't know. Anyway, go back to Revelation 2. Sometimes we're going the wrong way. And the Lord confronts us with a sword. And he says something like this. You better get on the right road. Because what you've been doing is blinding you. And your donkey saw me and you didn't. And you'd be dead if it wasn't for your donkey. <laughs> wow. I wonder what Balaam thought after that encounter. Thus you also, Revelation 2.15, have some in the same way, and there seems to be a connection between the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which in chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord said he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, I hate the teaching 
of the Nicolaitans. What was Balaam doing? Balaam got Moabite women. If you read on in Numbers 24, and we won't go there tonight, he got Moabite women to entice the men of Israel to get them to commit sexual immorality in the pagan practices of the Moabites, to get them off track, to get them involved in pagan rites and festivals so that they would turn away from the Lord. And in essence, the prophet said something like this, and he was probably a false prophet, but he said something like this, I can't curse them, but here's what you can do to mess them up. I want you to apply this to your own life as a Christian. The devil can't touch you. You are protected by the power of God. Your salvation is reserved in heaven for you. But if the devil can get you to mess with the Moabites, if you know what I'm saying, and get you to compromise your faith and your walk, he can get you another way. He dangles the carrot. This is interesting. In Genesis 19, do you know where the Moabites came from? It was Lot. After Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, his wife's killed in the in the uh, vengeance of God. And he goes, and he's probably in the caves near Qumran, by the way. This is Genesis 19. He probably is set up shop there, and it's, it's just his two daughters are with him, and they get Dad to drink wine. And they get him drunk, and Dad ends up being with the daughters, incest. And one of the kids that's born is named Moab. And the, if you... Look at Genesis 19. The story of Lot is all about the story of compromise. And he compromises. His daughters got him drunk, and that's why this ended up happening. But he didn't have to keep drinking, did he? But his daughters gave him more and more and more, and they were with him. And they they were probably with him because they may have thought, we're the only ones left on the planet. God just destroyed everything. We're We're the only survivor, so we have to be with our father so that there can be other humans born. That's giving them the benefit of the doubt, the way benefit of the doubt, by the way. But this is what happens. Lot compromises, and the compromise continues wave after wave all the way up, even to the days of Pergamum. At least there's a uh, connection there. Compromise in our life always ripples out, doesn't it? In one way or the other. And so we bite on the carrot and we think, oh, well, maybe this is no big deal or I can do this. I can play with fire. But the book of Proverbs says, if a man plays with fire, he's going to be what? Burned. You can't take fire to your chest and not be burned. And so the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the deeds of the Nicolaitans are captured um, along with this idea of the teaching of Balaam. It's probably all the same thing. And here's what it was. It's no big deal if you're a little lax on the sexual part as a Christian. It's not a big deal. The culture, look, you live in Pergamum. I mean, look what's going on in the temples, man. People are, they're doing this, they're doing that. I mean, it's just the way of the culture. Chill out. Lax a little bit on the sexual ethic stuff. As a Christian, do you really need to be pure until you're married? I mean, doesn't that seem a little bit over the top? I don't know, that's what my Bible says, but, uh, you know. But the culture is saying lax a little bit. Do we really have to be so tight on our definition of immorality? Do we have to be so tight on our definition of marriage? And so this has been the age-old problem. 
This is what the enemy says. He says, oh, we can, we can chill a little bit. You know, the Nicolaitans, they still say they're Christians. They just have a different approach, a different teaching. It'll be fine. It'll be good. But you know what? Compromises are never fine, and they're never good. And I'm sure that this room, if I called you all up one by one, and I would say, how did your compromise work out? Go ahead. I'm sure we'd have a lot of stories because it's little compromises that usually end up in big falls. And this church was facing it, man. And Jesus was saying, look, you're doing some good things, but there are other things that I'm not liking. And this is the idea of this teaching that was going, going around, and it's captured in a word that scholars throw around called antinomianism. When we did the introduction to the book of Colossians, I told you about antinomianism. Namos is the Greek word for law. Anti means against. The antinomians were against the law. They said we shouldn't have any law. So there's been modern cults in the last 50 to 100 years that have been exposed. And when the doors are open to these modern cults, you know what's happening behind closed doors? Sexual sin usually from the top down. Usually some weird charismatic cult leader that says other men's wives belong to him. Do you know Joseph Smith did that in Mormonism? Joseph Smith said that the wives of other men who were part of early Mormonism, he could have his way with them or actually steal them away and marry them for himself. I think at one point he had 38 wives. And then there's the Children of God movement or the David Koresh movement. When David Koresh and that cult was exposed, he was stealing other men's wives. And he was saying, she's mine tonight, and you're going to do what I said because I'm the leader. Oh, oh, by the way, I'm Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if you knew that. No, David Koresh, you're not. And so as time has gone by, people under religious banners start saying stuff like this. Oh, well, the, the sexual ethics have changed. You got to get with the, the new ways of the culture, man. I mean, you guys, let's get real tonight. This is pounding at our doorstep. Many major denominations have thrown in the towel. They've thrown it in. And a lot of these major denominations stopped believing in the virgin birth and in the inspiration of Scripture. And now they're throwing in the stuff on sexual ethics and marriage, and it's, it's going in conservative churches, and I'm not sure we should be called conservative, we should just be called biblical, amen, are becoming more rare. This, is, um, this was happening back in the day, and it's obviously happening today. First Peter said, Beloved, First Peter 2, 11 and 12, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Look, if you've made a mistake in this area, I'm not here to bag on you. But I am here to say this. If we are going to embrace the ways of God, it means that we are going to have to shun the ways of the culture. It means that if you get engaged to an individual, don't have sex until you're married. Is that plain enough? It means that there is a covenant 
that God wants you to honor inside your marriage. And he doesn't want you to excuse sexual sin. We ran into a guy on the golf course and we were talking a little bit. And it came out as we asked him some questions that he was living with his girlfriend. And yet he was going to church every Sunday. And we're kind of like, well, how does that work exactly? You're living with your girlfriend, but you go to church every Sunday. And he said, well, I got to see if this whole thing is going to work out. (laughs) Yeah, that, that sounds pretty convenient. That sounds like you have a pretty good exit plan if you don't like what's happening. Doesn't sound like a commitment to me. And so we, we have our excuses, but this church is addressed, and here's what Jesus says, verse 16. You're not going to feel great about it, but here's what it says. <laughs> it says, repent, therefore, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I don't think this is the second coming. I think this is his coming in judgment. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. If you are contrary to my way, just like Balaam, I may cut you. I hope you have a donkey that is good 2020 vision. (laughs) You say, what does this mean exactly? I thought repentance was for unbelievers. No, these seven churches are addressed. They're all, they're, Believing churches, they're churches. The church is called to repent. What does that mean? Repentance is metanoia in Greek. It means to change your mind and change your actions. And when you change your mind, you typically change your actions. And sometimes when you change your mind, it's when God confronts you and says, don't do that anymore. Otherwise, I'm going to bring a sword that you're not going to like in your life. Ooh. Well, you say, that doesn't sound very loving, Pastor Michael. Well, take a look at Revelation 3, verse 19. Revelation 3, 19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Revelation 3, 19, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Read the verse with me again. Those whom I love, I do what? I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Those whom I love, I discipline. Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines the son in whom he delights. Now, how many of you could say tonight, I praise God for his discipline? (laughs) Can I get a witness? Oh, yeah. Wow. Because if discipline comes into your life, what's what's God saying to you? He's saying to you, I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you to dishonor my name or hurt your witness, or hurt your marriage. So I'm going to stand in your way. And even if you don't see me, hopefully your donkey will. And I'm going to bring the sword of my word into your life. I've said this to people. I don't say it with any kind of glee. I say it usually with a heart of a pastor with compassion. And And I'll qualify by saying this. I'm a human, and I could fall on my face at any moment. But I've said to people who are in sin without repenting, you are inviting the discipline of God into your life. And I say that with biblical authority. You're asking God to discipline you. If that's what you want, go for it. But I'll tell you what, to the Corinthians, Paul said, if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. So I would prefer, if the Lord's been nudging me in a certain area, I just would prefer to own it and repent of it so I don't have to deal with his sword. 
He said, what is his sword, Pastor Michael? I don't know exactly, but whatever it is, I don't want. I don't want it. <laughs> right? Have you ever had to tell a friend something hard and you had to take three or four gulps before you picked up the phone or you met him for coffee and you said something like this? I'll, I'll say it guy to guy. Dude, I love you. But what you're doing is going to destroy you and your family and your witness and the honor of Christ in your life. Don't do that anymore. What does it take for you as a friend to say that to somebody? Oh, that's one of the hardest things to do. But what would motivate you to do that? Why would you ever have a meeting like that? I certainly don't enjoy filling my calendars with meetings where I have to confront individuals like, gee, I've got him on Thursday morning and her on Friday afternoon, and oh, it's going to be wonderful. No, none of us takes delight in that. But what would ever motivate any of us to say something hard to a friend? One word, love. If you don't say anything, I'm going to question your love for that person. I'm not saying it's comfortable. I'm not saying it's easy. But I'm saying that the only reason you would say something hard to a person, and here's what Jesus says in Matthew 18, if you warn your brother and he turns from his way, you have saved your brother, this is the language, from further harm. If your brother's standing on the railroad tracks and woo, 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 trains coming down the track, what are you going to do? Oh, he's fine. He hears the whistle. What if he's got headphones on? He's listening to his music. <laughs> what are you going to do? Are you going to practice what's known in Latin, non rockabotus? That means whatever you do, no rocket a boat. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I borrowed that from Dr. Walter Martin. He said that the church is suffering from endemic disease called non rockabotus. Whatever you do, no rock at a boat. Look, I know we want to be cool and at peace with everybody. That's me. I, I, like, I like smooth waters, but I've discovered something. Life keeps throwing me troubled ones. <laughs> and things that I have to sometimes say, hey, here's what's going on. Um, I thought when I signed up for the pastorate, I just got to preach and I got to go home. And then... And then I started working at the church, and, and there's people <laughs> and problems and, and funerals and weddings and premarital and postmarital counseling and primordial ooze. And <laughs> Let's face it, there's so many things pulling at Christians in our culture the church has become enculturated. There was a story about a pastor who was caught committing sexual sin. He committed adultery on his wife for 13 months while he was preaching. He gets caught. They dismissed him, and he was shocked. He asked why. I repented and asked for forgiveness. They said, but because for 13 months you were in the pulpit committing adultery on your wife while you preached to everybody else. That's why you were dismissed. Look, as I've said many times, nobody can stand in a pulpit perfect. There's no perfect men behind pulpits, but 
there's a call to holiness. Amen? And I know things are pulling on you because they pull on me in this culture. And here's our problem. Why do you think people get involved in sexual sin and immorality and idolatry? Just, just think for a second. What do you think the pull is? Think about it. Think, look deep. What do you think the pull is towards idolatry and sexual immorality? I'll tell you what it is. It's a substitute for love, true love, and it's a substitute for true intimacy. We think if we go and grab these dangling carrots, we're going to find something that God can't give us or our spouse can't give us or our friends can't give us. And so we do, what we do is we glom onto those things. And what they produce every single time is more emptiness. They can't produce. Think of uh, Esau. He comes in from the field. He's known as Big Red. Big Red. Old uh, bubblegum commercial, right? Anyway, he comes in. I'm famished, man. I've been, I've been hunting. I'm an outdoorsman. Jacob's stirring the Campbell's soup on tomato. <laughs> give me some of that. Give me that bite of that stew. I'm famished. Okay, just give me your birthright and we'll be cool. All right, what good is the birthright to me if I'm starving here? I haven't eaten in 45 minutes. Might have been a teenager. So he ate the soup. Hopefully it was good, right? Momentary pleasure for the flesh. How long did it take him to eat the soup? Maybe five minutes. Oh, the stew. Yeah, hungry man's. Yeah. And then what? Birthright, gone. Was it worth it, Esau? Couldn't you have made a turkey sandwich? <laughs> You're a hunter, man. Come on. Sometimes for 5, 10, 15 minutes, people will sell everything. Everything. So Jesus says, repent, or I'm going to make war with you with a sword from my mouth. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. And look, here's an encouragement at the end. To him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna. What's that? Well, we know what the manna was. The manna was the provision that God gave the children of Israel in the wilderness. And manna means, what is it? That's the definition of manna. Don't say that when your mother-in-law cooks a meal for you and places it before you. Don't say, what is it? Or a sword's coming and you'll be sleeping with the donkey. <laughs> so the, the manna came and it was white and flaky and sweet like honey and they would pick it up every day. It was a daily provision. But you know what happened with the manna, right? They, even though it was a miracle and even though it was sweet and you could do all kinds of different things with it, manna, cotty, and, and all kinds of stuff. They got sick of it, and you know what they said? I'm tired of manna. I'm tired of this supernatural provision from God. Let's get a caravan, and let's go back to Egypt. And as Christians, we have this incredible manna from God. We have the bread of God, the word of God, the living Christ abiding in his church. But sometimes we go, ah, you know, I, 
I'm a little tired of manna. What? what? Let's go back to Egypt for the weekend. Right? I, I'm sure there's, there's steak and onions and green peppers and they saute them and... Right? And somebody whispers, you were slaves in Egypt. You weren't going to the restaurants. You were dancing in the mud, building the pyramids for the pharaoh. Yeah, but every, twice a month they gave us a steak buffet dinner. Right? We remember the good times. Not that we were enslaved and the taskmasters were beating our back. Right? Jesus said, I'm the bread of God that came down from heaven. What's the hidden manna? It's whatever you need for the greatest longings of your soul you're going to find in me. Don't look for cheap substitutes in those temples up on that hill because every time you go there, you're going to find a more and more emptiness. Christ is enough. You believe that? Christ is enough. Number two, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone. Idolatry, we, pull, we get pulled towards because we think it'll do something for our souls. Maybe give us some power or something we need. We go towards sexual immorality because it's a false sense of intimacy and it doesn't give you intimacy. Pornography and that world is a big, fat lie. Most of those girls have to be high to, to do what they do and say that they like it on camera. I'm just gonna be blunt with you. I've heard them interviewed. This is what happens. They say, I had to be high to do that. And when they interviewed me, they always told me to say that I really enjoy what I'm doing when I hated it and I felt filthy and abused and despised. That's, that's the lie of the devil. Well, just make it look good on the outside because that carrot will draw a bunch of people in, even Christians. And Jesus says, you want the manna? You want a white stone, a new name written on it, the name I'm going to give you, which no one knows. I know it. You're going to know it. I'm going to call you Peter. Your name is Rock. I'm going to call you whatever your name's going to be in the future when God's going to give you that name. It's something between you and him. It's an intimacy that you can't know outside of knowing God and, of course, in the right relationships on a human level. I'll provide food for your soul. What does the white stone represent? There's perhaps a dozen or more views on the white stone. Some say it indicates innocence. Throwing the black stone meant guilty. Throwing the white stone meant innocent and like a court. Still others believe it's the white stone on Aaron's breastplate, the high priest's breastplate of the 12 gemstones. But some scholars have pointed out a Roman custom, and we'll finish with this, was to award white stones called a tessera to the victors in athletic contests. The white stone would be inscribed with the athlete's name and serve as his ticket to a special awards banquet. In this view, the white stone would represent the believer being in heaven and celebrating his eternal victory and rewards in Jesus Christ. A new name. Intimacy with God. I'm just going to read. One author says, it will be a name that represents all that he knows we are and will be. There is here a promise of intimacy, true intimacy. Whatever else it means, this promise this promises that there will be a private communication between God and the one who overcomes. 
Surely God knows the name on the stone, and the one who receives the stone knows the name. And that exclusive knowledge, that private interaction that no one else shares, is the essence of intimacy. Jesus is arming us with the weapons for the war on lust. Cheap substitutes will never do. Don't go back fishing. Don't go back to the Acropolis. Get closer with Jesus. He knows your struggles. He knows where you've failed. He knows where you need help. He knows where you need encouragement. And he says, look, you can overcome because I overcame first. 